How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. One of the things I kept up here, Todd, as I saved just for you, is as we're 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 waiting on you, we're sorting through the Pornhub categories. Um, the year in review has the most searched for movie and TV characters. Any ideas what would be number one there? Uh, I'm going to say a Batman related character. Mm, close. It's the Avengers. They just included oh, the Avengers. All of them. Okay. Like 13, all of, all 13 million, 13,000. Like literally just the Avengers, not specific Avengers. It just says, because I, I mean, there's, I mean, if we're talking Avengers, like an Avengers orgy. I, I, maybe oh. they search for the term Avengers because number two was Harley Quinn. I can't believe Harley Quinn wasn't number one, honestly. Yeah, that's that feels like it would I be have, a popular win. Oddly enough, number three last year might have been. I bet last year was probably number one. This was last year. He's looking yeah. at 2019. Oh, no, I mean, year. like, year. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I get it. Teen Titans was number three for anybody really? who cares. Gross. Yeah. That, Illegal. That's, well, teens, teens are popular. Captain Marvel also made the top five and the Incredibles. Um, the Incredibles. Incredibles, yeah. <laughs> well, Toy Story's on this list down a little bit, but there's a pretty, uh, there's a significant jump from like Harley Quinn had 9 million searches. The Avengers had 13 million. So there was I'm some- curious what the Avengers, what, what well, the I mean- search results are. I mean, I guess I could find out right now what, yeah. what's funny too is the incredibles are on here but then later down the list uh is elastigirl so specifically uh, okay. yes yeah, yeah, just specifically yeah. elastigirl she is what the kids call slim thick <laughs> you got princess leia batgirl deadpool's on here so good for you mm-hmm. ryan reynolds toy stories on here which i have no clue what I, the listen the, I can... the, the the search term toy story on Pornhub is going to bring up quite a few results. I'm going to say, especially when you have a character (laughs) named Woody. Uh, Yeah. There you go. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Uh, My slinky dog. Wow. Uh, Woody Woody and Buzz. Professional comedian. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Parties, bar mitzvahs. Also at the bottom of this list. How many bar mitzvahs have you done? 62,000. I have yet to be booked for any bar mitzvahs, but yeah. I'm, oh, I'm totally open to it. <laughs> Scooby-Doo was oh. at the bottom of the list here. Wow. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah, I don't... Hmm. I, I have to assume that's some, like, for the human characters, but you never know. Yeah. You never know what people are into. Yeah. Uh, I also love this really quickly, if I can. They break down the uh, Pornhub Joker searches. <laughs> so like specific people are searching for specific jokers there was a yeah it says uh the massive there was a massive 3345 percent increase in joker searches after the launch of the movie 
<laughs> so the the Joaquin Phoenix movie. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, hmm. on October fourth. He's last he's not year. Nude in that. Is he? No. Is he nude? No. Yeah, he's not nude in that. I mean, he no. has that one scene where he dances in his underwear. So I, yeah, really... but that, that is not <laughs> enticing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, there's look, there's each his own. Clearly, there's something for everybody. And I love, I love that on May the Fourth. That's why we're all married. Star Wars porn. <laughs> on May the Fourth, Star Wars porn jumped seven hundred and forty-eight percent. Well, so, sure. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I just love the the concept that people are like, "Oh shit, it's May the Fourth. I got to spank one out to Leia or Luke." <laughs> 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 just want to jerk one to Darth Maul. <laughs> you know, he's somebody yeah. I've never fantasized about. Oh boy! There's that. Well, hello and welcome to uh, Cinema Shock. <laughs> and, uh, we're full of so oh, much information that you can hardly handle it. Uh, <laughs> that was unintentional, but it works. Uh, we are the uh, we're, we're the podcast that discusses the the history and legacy of your favorite cult genre. You've totally forgotten what podcast you're doing now. Yep. <laughs> no, well, no, I mean, but we do because we. Because we close the, the Pornhub window, Gary. It's yeah, closed. stop looking at it. If I don't get this out, Gary. I'm not going to have a good episode. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's I've got to. And uh, I thought we were starting earlier, and I didn't have time. And so I, that's and I my were fault. Talking, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I just uh, got one going. And <laughs> <laughs> when you get a good one going, you. Do, I mean, listen. The, the, as you get older, they get fewer, further between. Mm-hmm. So you got to make the most of them. Yeah, you can um, you can cause yourself like stomach cancer if you don't finish. I just watch. I'm watching the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Is that true? And stomach uh, cancer. And in the one with Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger, I finished that one last night. Uh, the Next Generation. The next Generation. Yeah. One of the guys tells the girl that like he's just like it's not good for it to get all built up in there and stuff. Oh. Like you can get like stomach cancer or something. Are we talking about shit? Mm-mm. No, we're talking about we're talking about semen. <laughs> ah. yep. so, I mean, I guess he could have been talking to her about shit. That would make more sense. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't even remember if it was like, stomach cancer specifically, but it's like <laughs> it, it's it's something really ridiculous listen. like that. But it's what I'm going to start using on my wife. <laughs> Honey, I've got you. Don't want me to get stomach cancer. <laughs> Anyway, introduce yourself. This is, yeah, hey, I'm Gary Horde, and I'm so sorry to start it off this way. <laughs> I'm Justin Bishop. Joining us today for the 10th episode in a row, writer, comedian. Oh, countless more. I was about yeah. to say, he's just part of this. Stop acting like he's some special. He's a special person. guest. Yeah. <laughs> special yeah. guest. Writer, comedian, available for all of your bar mitzvahs. <laughs> all of them. All of them. All of them. Mr. Todd A. Davis. Shalom. Yeah, I was going to say, I'd really love to know what the percentage of our Jewish listeners are. Uh, what's the Jewish contingent of Cinema Shock? I need, I need to know that now, actually, because it's going gonna, it's gonna to dictate how I proceed in this episode with my what? jokes. Be careful with dictates <laughs> so after you've been watching that much Pornhub, Gary. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, this is it, guys. This is our 10th episode, our final episode in this Romero Savini series. Todd is 
applauding because no, he's I'm applaud- it. Ten, 10 episodes. <laughs> hey, all right, he's, good for I us. He's just like, yeah, we're done with that, this series. That, that's not, that's I have like two that. movies out of this series. <laughs> I, I will say <laughs> that I mean, for this, us. Is, this is the longest we've gone in a series, I feel yeah. like. It's uh, certainly an achievement. It feels like something special. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And mo- most of our series won't be this long, but uh, we, we decided to, I don't know, start off on you know a big like epic note so we decided to go with it with a big long series this time so you know it broke todd in to like let's see if he can hang for the marathon yeah we'll reward oh, him in the end yeah so we've <laughs> well <laughs> we spent the last about. 10 weeks on this show documenting or the last nine weeks like on the show documenting one of the greatest creative partnerships in the history of horror i don't think that's hyperbole to say that and that's the relationship between George Romero and makeup effects artist Tom Savini. Uh, and now we've kind of, with this episode, we're kind of coming full circle. Because on the first episode of the series, we discussed Romero's uh, seminal zombie film, Night of the Living Dead, a film that, of course, uh, we, it did not involve Tom Savini. Uh, but not for lack of trying, because uh, if you go back to that episode, if you listen to that episode, you know that Savini actually wanted to work on that. And a little thing called Vietnam got in the way. Mm. But, as it did for so many things. <laughs> but over the years, uh, Savini proved himself to be just an absolute master of special effects, of makeup effects. And he helped George Romero to change the zombie genre forever in his subsequent zombie movies, Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead. In the mid-1980s, you know, as he went along, Savini began, you know, he we've talked about he, gosh, he was a, a makeup effects artist. He was an actor. He was a stuntman. Like, he did everything on a movie, but he had never directed quite yet. Not until the 1980s, mid 1980s. He cut his teeth as a director by working on three episodes of the George Romero produced tales from the dark side TV series. So when the idea to remake Romero's original zombie film came up, Savini seemed like a natural choice. So today that's what we're going to discuss. We're discussing Tom Savini's take on the zombie classic. As we look at the 1990 version, the remake of night of the living dead. They came to pay their respects. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Why do you have to be so cruel? What? Show some respect. Now, they're running for their lives. A biologist in Stockton, California, have released reports focusing on the phenomenon, specifically on that trance-like state. Every shelter is becoming a trap. Are you sure we're going to be all right? Out. Don't stop no matter what happens. It's just another dead end. They're coming right for us. George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. I thought it couldn't get any more nighter <laughs> or livinger or deader. I wish that was how the trailer went. Tom Savini's back. Tom Savini. I mean, I I think that we are not inherently like anti-remake here. I I, I guess I'm speaking for you guys, but I know me and Gary at least have discussed it in the past. Me and Todd, maybe we have as well. Mm. But I because well, I know that me and Gary both count John Carpenter's The Thing among our favorite horror films, and and that's obviously a remake. David Cronenberg's The Fly is a remake, but right. 
anytime that a classic film is remade, there is some trepidation involved. And, and even in the case of like The Thing or The Fly, like the originals were not the classics or considered quite the classics that the original Night of the Living Dead was. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, I think, that, look, there's, there's always some film, there's going to be some big fans of it. And, you know, when to go to, to have the chutzpah to go and think that, oh, I can do it better. Or, you know, they forgot this, you know, sort of puts you, you know, sort of says that you've got the hubris to do, to either do it better or the way that you're going to do it is going to be better. And I mean, that's a, you know, that's a bit of a, that's a bit of a slap in the face to some of the hardcore fans. I would think. I think what's funny is like uh, literally today I was thinking about this, not just because of this episode, but also I just watched, I've been doing the Texas Chainsaw franchise this Halloween. And so I just watched the remake before we recorded. And uh, I was thinking of how weird, I don't remember how much I felt about it at the time that it came out, but for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or even Night of the Living Dead, like these movies that become like classic films in, a, in horror, like in all of cinema, to go in and say like, I'm going to remake this movie. That's just, uh, I don't know, it's a big leap. At least with this one, it's got some unique circumstances behind it that the others didn't have. Yeah, because when this movie was announced and when it was being released, there was you know, there were horror fans who were like, "What? Well, what, why the hell would you do that? That seems like a it seems it seemed like another case of Hollywood either running out of ideas or just trying to capitalize on on a well known IP to try to make a little bit of money." But if you look into the circumstances that Gary's alluding to behind the making of of this particular remake, you'll realize that that isn't quite. The case because Night of the Living Dead wasn't just trying to cash in on the legacy of Romero's original film. It was, in fact, an attempt to protect his original film. So we mentioned a few episodes back that Romero and his Night of the Living Dead co-writer John Russo had sort of they sort of parted ways when they couldn't agree on the direction to take the series in terms of a sequel. And what that eventually led to was Russo writing his own sequel in novel form. It's called The Return of the Living Dead. And of course, there was a subsequent film pseudo adaptation of that by Dan O'Bannon. And that's a big story that there's a lot of really interesting moving parts in that particular story that we're not going to get into here because we are planning on visiting Return of the Living Dead at some point nice. in the future. But after the success of Night of the Living Dead, Russo went on to write a lot of a, a lot of books, a lot more novels, and even got into directing a little bit himself. He started his uh, directing career with a sex comedy called The Booby Hatch in 1976. <laughs> and uh, he followed that up in 1982 with a film called Midnight, which was based on a novel that he had written uh, of, by the same name. Around the time that Romero was doing Day of the Dead and Monkey Shines, Russo was adapting another one of his novels, a, a one called The Majorettes, into a film. So that was like a slasher movie, came out in 1986. Uh, I have not seen it, but uh, that one wasn't directed by Russo. It was actually directed by Bill Hensman, who was part of that original Romero troupe, that Image 10 group of guys. Uh, he actually played the cemetery zombie in the original Night of the Living Dead. Oh, nice. So Hensman followed that up in 1988 with a film called uh, The Flesh Eaters. Of course, that's kind of an allusion to the original name of Night of the Living Dead, and it's sort of... Uh, it's sort of a spoof of Night of the Living Dead from what I've, I've read about it. I have never seen it, but uh, Hensman 
wrote and directed that and also apparently reprises his role as the cemetery zombie in it, which is super weird to yeah. me. But kind of fun, though. Yeah, I mean, I would see it, but I've heard it's pretty awful. Oh. So, <laughs> uh, at this point, though, it did, it did seem pretty unlikely that Romero and Russo and Russell Striner and and Bill Hensman would ever really work together again. But all of that changed in 1990 when they saw an opportunity to protect the legacy of the original Night of the Living Dead and maybe even make back a little bit of the money that they had never really been able to capitalize on. And this is a another something that we talked about way back in episode one, but just as a kind of quick refresher, because it has been, you know, what, two and a half months since that episode. Yeah. Uh, so original, the original title for Night of the Living Dead for Romero's film was Night of the Flesh Eaters. They had to change that title uh, kind of last minute to avoid confusion and a possible lawsuit from the people who held the rights to a similarly named film just called The Flesh Eaters. Unfortunately, when that happened, the film's distributors made a fatal clerical error. They forgot to transfer the copyright notice onto the new title and the film ended up falling into public domain this is a big part of the night of the living dead mythos that i'm sure most people listening to the show have already heard about uh so romero and his his image 10 production company that the guys along with them they spent decades trying to regain rights to the film and recoup some of its not insubstantial earnings i mean it was uh night of the living dead made something like 30 to 50 million dollars on a on a hundred thousand dollar budget and Romero and Image Ten saw very, very little of that. Was there uh, ever, uh, was there any ever, ever any litigation about that between like yes. Romero and the? They spent a lot. They spent years and years in court. Yes, because I was going to say that's clearly negligence on the part of the distributor. Yeah. So during these years, at the time when this movie was in the public domain, pretty much anyone was legally free to do whatever the hell they wanted with the film, including there's, you know, a colorized version of it that came out in the eighties, you know, because uh, people could do that. They could release bootleg DVDs and or VHSs or whatever they wanted to. Now image 10, after years and years in court, they would eventually regain the rights to the film. But at this point, the damage was kind of done. So Russ Striner and John Russo as the co-founders of image 10 and trustees of the company, they spent years just trying to protect their newly required copyright. They would try to track down pirated videos, bootleg t-shirts, and have them taken off the market, which is a strenuous you know, thing to have to do over and over and over again. And for years, it was totally legal for people to do that. Part of their responsibility as trustees of the company also included doing a remake of the film. So then news gets to George Romero that a guy named uh, Menahem Golan, I don't know if you recognize that name, but he was one of the two cousins who owned the famous Canon group. If you remember the Canon logo that showed up on the, at the beginning of films in the eighties, like he was one of the guys who, who began that. Yeah. Golan uh, referred to it as his precious, right? <laughs> Got him. So uh, he was apparently interested in doing a remake for his new company, uh, which was called 21st Century Film Corporation. So Romero and Russo buried the hatchet, the legal hatchet. Apparently, according to both of them, there was never any kind of personal animosity between them. It was all just a difference of opinion on where, where this property should go. They never really butted heads in their personal lives, if that makes sense. So they made a deal with Golan, and Romero, Russo, and Striner came on board as producers, but with Romero taking sole screenwriting duties this time. So he upped, he basically rewrote his and Russo's original screenplay to fit a more modern film. 
did they go into like the specific changes of what made it modern? Because I mean, the original kind of seems. I mean, it seems kind of timeless. Yeah, yeah, but there. I mean, there are some things that I'm sure we'll discuss here that he updated to fit more modern sensibilities. Oh, okay, is the, is the best. Thing. Yeah, there's it's, not like the the racial stuff in the end because, as we know, like since that time, like racism has ended. And yeah, so. I was, <laughs> <laughs> we fix that in the subsequent. Yeah, let's let's just years. go ahead and check that off the list. Yeah. We're done. We got it. Taken so, care of. As far as why Romero didn't just direct it himself, it was just simply because he was not available to do so. He, By the time Night of the Living Dead was in pre-production, he was already well underway working on another film of his own, which was an adaptation of the Stephen King novel, The Dark Half, which he was doing for Orion Pictures, who he had worked with on Monkey Shines. So logically, Tom Savini came on board to do the makeup effects for the new Night of the Living Dead. I mean, who else are they going to ask, right? But Romero actually persuaded him to direct it as well. Savini even says, you know, he's he's like, George told me, I'm available if you have any questions or anything, but this is your movie. Do with it as you want, and I'll, I'll be there to back you up. That's pretty great that, I mean, because, I mean, we've seen before where department supervisor ends up getting the director's chair and, you know, they end up focusing on a particular aspect of the film and, and thusly the film kind of falls flat. So for Romero to say, hey, you know, you've clearly got the chops for this. That's That's got to be, that's got to make Savini feel pretty fucking awesome. Yeah, I mean, he, he totally trusted him. Yeah. So they shot the film in, well, just outside of Pittsburgh, obviously, where <laughs> I think we I think we've already uh, figured out that trend on these Romero films. They're shooting in in and around Pittsburgh. This was specifically shot in a rural area about 25 miles south of Pittsburgh. But it was not by most accounts, especially by Savini's account. Not a very pleasant shoot. Uh, so Savini actually described it as the worst nightmare of my life. Really? So yeah, so with without Romero on set, he would just constantly clash with the film's other producers. He was totally unable to, he was unable to fully realize his vision for the film because Romero was absent from the set completely for the first half of the shoot because he was busy writing the dark half. So he wasn't there to like be there in person to back up Savini and to be able to kind of fight for Savini's vision. Yeah, so Savini didn't have to worry about like internet haters. The haters were producers. Yeah, they were the guys he was working for. Awesome. In fact, here, here's a uh, I read an interview with Savini in Film Monthly, and here's a little quote from that. He says, "I got stuck with these two idiot producers that didn't know anything, and their careers prove it. And it, and you know, I didn't want to make their bad movie for them." He says. You know, my hands were just slapped all over the place. I couldn't do a lot of stuff. The movie is about 40% of what I intended to do. It would be a much better movie if I had gotten to put in all the stuff that I really wanted to do. And then, of course, they had to battle with the MPAA in addition to battling with their own producers. So Savini, you know, he says the movie's only about 40% of what he wanted to do. And that doesn't mean that they only put like 40% of his footage in. I mean, this is all his footage, but they didn't get to shoot necessarily the footage that he really wanted to do like what his original vision was so he rides high from getting tossed the keys by romero but with a car full of idiots yeah (laughs) he's got to drive around exactly like one one thing he wanted to do for example was he wanted to shoot the opening in the graveyard in black and white like in the original film and then have it like gradually fade into color which i think would have been that's Super cool. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I think that would yeah, be, be really cool. What a great idea. Why would you not let him do that? That's so fun. But the producer said no. 
Yeah, they seem to be really bad about cutting stuff. I, I mean, I, I saw that same interview you were talking about on like uh, Phil Monthly, and and he talks about they just the MPAA kept making them cut stuff, but then they didn't really have an option to be there for some of it was like these producers were like cutting stuff. Um, and so the, I think that was from the same interview, but they, you know, he just talks about the film being basically a sterile version of what he wanted with like him and George's name on it. And right. So let's talk about the cast of this a little bit in the lead. I, what I would consider the lead of the, of this version is Barbara Patri- Patricia Tallman who we know her from a couple of past episodes. She was a Pittsburgh resident, a graduate of Romero and Savini's alma mater there at Carnegie Mellon University. And she, of course, had worked with them on Knight Riders as one of the main characters on that. Uh, Knight Riders was her first film. And after that, she had mostly appeared in television or in small bit parts in movies. Like if you look at her IMDb, she's credited as bandstand babe in roadhouse or possessed witch in army of darkness like these little bit parts yeah Uh, but she's mostly well known to a lot of especially sci-fi fans for her frequent appearances on various star trek series as various aliens or various characters and for a long-running lead role on babylon 5 but her primary occupation it seems to it seems that she was actually a stunt woman uh, dated that dated all the way back to her years, her early years with Romero. She's credited as as a stunt woman on uh, Tales from the Dark Side, Monkey Shines, and Creep Show Two, and then on Star Trek, she was a stunt person on a lot of episodes. She was actually the stunt double for Gates McFadden on Star Trek: The Next Generation. Nice. And then she would go on to be the stunt double for like Laura Dern in Jurassic Park. And Gina Davis and the Long Kiss Goodnight. Like, she's got a really long resume. But when you see her as an actress, it's mostly in, like, really small parts, which is kind of a bummer because I think she's really actually quite good in this movie. And she never had a role this meaty again after this. You can totally tell that uh, Savini has this, like, uh, uh, admiration for, you know, Sigourney Weaver in Alien. And oh, so... Yeah. So that's what's going on here. And he knows, I mean, you know, like all the stuff you said, I mean, I think they actually went to college together. So he's, he's known Patricia Tallman for a long time, but he knew, I, I've seen him describe her, you know, like how badass he knew she was already in person. So he wanted to really take advantage of that. Like he, he describes like uh, him seeing her do stuff like stunts when she was pregnant. Like she still insisted on doing, uh, like he said, wow. I think one of them was like her falling off a pirate ship in Star Trek Generations, stuff like uh, that. Yeah. Then of course we've got Tony Todd as Ben in the other lead role. Of course we all Candy know Man. Tony. Yeah, we know Tony Todd. He's Candyman, but but and he's a legend. I mean, yeah. But at the time that he was cast as Ben in this film, he was just kind of getting started in his film career, only having. He had a couple of movie roles under his belt, the most prominent being in Oliver Stone's Platoon a few years earlier. Uh, and, and much like Tallman, he's actually got some Star Trek cred as well. Mm. In 1991, he appeared on uh, The Next Generation as Kern, which is Worf's brother, in I think three episodes. I think he showed up for a fourth episode, a fourth appearance on Deep Space Nine later on, if I remember correctly. I believe you are correct, sir. So, and then by 1992, of course, he was firmly rooted as a horror legend for his role in Candyman, and and he that's kind of his thing now he's just like a horror guy he shows up in horror movies all over the place uh, he he works the horror conventions i mean he's he's the horror legend that you throw in for a cameo like in hellfest you know things like that like that's just who tony todd is now but this was kind of before all that there's worse gigs he's a then, baby uh, he's a baby tony todd 
<laughs> yeah, he's. I mean, I think he's pretty good in this too, and and wouldn't necessarily. I mean, yes, this is a horror film, but he's far from like the villain that he would later be known as in horror. Yeah, he gets to show a lot of uh, range in this one. I think more than you normally get from him, honestly. Then you've that- got Tom Towles as Harry Cooper. Now, Tom Towles at the time was best known as Otis in Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that, but he's kind of Henry's sidekick, I guess you would say. He's probably best known to modern audiences for his frequent appearances in Rob Zombie films. He's the sheriff in uh, The Devil's Rejects and, and House of a Thousand Corpses, things like that. Oh, okay. I, so, knew, I was like, God, he looks so familiar, but I didn't I didn't want to cheat. And Well, he looks very different in the Rob Zombie movies, too. He's got the, the big Marvel Man mustache, and he's bald. And, you know. Gotcha. Yeah. So, I wanted here, to say, too, Justin, about Tony Todd, I, mean, I thought this was interesting. I, I meant to say this with the range thing that I was talking about. I mean, that was what got him the job. I remember seeing yeah. Savini saying that, you know, he had Lawrence Fishburne, Eric LaSalle read for him. But Ving Rames, yeah, Ving Rames, but then who to- would later be in the Dawn of the Dead remake, right? Right, which is <laughs> interesting enough. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but no, he said, like, Tony Todd walked in, he handed Todd the script and said that Tony Todd walked out for like five minutes, came back in, knew every line of dialogue perfectly, and produced real tears. And he said he immediately just closed the book and was like, Oh, yeah, that's that's been. Yeah, wow. that's awesome. Yeah, that's that's really that's, that's great. Awesome. <laughs> uh, so Tom Towles, uh, real quick, a fun little aside, fun little psychotronic connection that I think Gary will find interesting if if no one else does. I found it interesting. <laughs> but before breaking out in film, he was a stage actor. He is from Chicago, and he was a member of Chicago's Organic Theater Company, which if you were a listener of the Psychotronic Film Society of me and Gary's old podcast, you will know that that was a theater company that was founded by reanimator director Stuart Gordon. So Tom Towell is actually, that's where he got his start under the tutelage of Stuart Gordon. Look at this. Just all, it's a small world after all. <laughs> all, all, all connects. Uh, so William Butler plays Tom, who is the like little dorky dude from the original one who gets killed because his girlfriend is an idiot. Um, <laughs> and this one, they're kind of recast as like rednecks, I guess. So they got their Steelers hats on and stuff, but I start. I went down a rabbit hole looking at this guy's career because I went on his IMDb and I started looking at all these like credits. And I was like, "What? Who the hell is this guy?" <laughs> so, so he is. Uh, this is according to his his own IMDb bio. He is the only actor in movie history to have been killed by Jason Voorhees, Leatherface, the zombies from Night of the Living Dead, and Freddy Krueger. Nice. He's in, he's in Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven, Leatherface, the the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Three. And then in two episodes of Freddy's Nightmares, the TV series with Freddy Krueger. Nice. Wow. And so, so he spent most of his time in the last 20 years as a writer-director with a really weird, really diverse portfolio that sort of splits itself between a lot of Disney Channel TV shows and a lot of shitty Charles Band movies like uh, <laughs> Demonic Toys 2 he directed and The Ginger Dead Man 3, Saturday Night Cleaver, uh, directed by William Butler. Uh, which he also wrote. Uh, he also wrote the first two Ginger Dead Man movies. Yeah, I and really reject you using the word the shitty crust. before this. <laughs> the Passion of the Crust is that the second one, right? Yeah, that's no, the, the second, second one. one. Yeah, I don't, I don't get the <laughs> shitty reference though. Wow. Yeah, I mean, do you just love Gary Busey's performance in those movies? Oh man. Well, it, so I, Busey, as I right? recall, what happens is Gary Busey has like five minutes in the movie, and they just 
record it. They just like replay some of the same lines he uses. In yeah, yeah. They minutes, had like, him for one the day, <laughs> and that's it. Then they just reuse his dialogue over and over. That's how it works. That's <laughs> movie magic, folks. So, and here, here's another odd connection between William Butler and Night of the Living Dead. He also wrote the screenplays for Return of the Living Dead four and five which is like rave beyond the grave and something else I'll remember, which in another weird psychotronic film society connection, those films were directed by uh, Elori Echoyam, who did eight legged freaks, which was the official oh. last episode of our last podcast. Oh, okay. Nice. That's interesting. What a great Isn't callback. Speaking of callbacks too, uh, Tom wears the iron city brewing company, uh, beer logo on, mm-hmm. on his shirt, which is like the same, uh, beer that like the I think the bikers are drinking in Dawn of the Dead. It's like yeah. it's appeared throughout some of George's movies. Well, it's a real uh, brewery, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's a real brewery. Yeah. And I think the latent image had done a commercial for them, like when they yeah. first started out or something. That sounds right. Some uh, interesting cameos in this one too. You know, like uh, yeah. like George A. Romero's the voice on the radio at the end, but uh, mm-hmm. Russell Striner. Uh, who was Johnny in the uh, OG is uh, the sheriff at the end. He's the sheriff at the end who says like, they're all, they're all messed up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Billy, chili, Billy Cardilli is in it again. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we didn't even mention Bill Mosley as the new Johnny in this one. How did we not mention? Bill How do you not mention Bill Mosley? Bill Mosley was, I mean, I guess he wasn't like a big Bill Mosley's career is really interesting because he's like, I get, we'll probably talk about him more on an on a episode where he's featured a little bit more because it's it's really more of a cameo in this movie. Like he had already guess, done Chop Top, but I don't think Yeah, he, he had done Chop Top, and that's kind of what he was known for. But between Chop Top and this, which is about four years, I want to say Texas Chainsaw 2 is 86. It was, yeah. Um, he had not done a lot of, he had done, done more bit parts. Like Chop Top was not like a big breakout role for him because that movie did not perform very well obviously it's very well regarded now by a lot of genre fans but at the time it wasn't very well received so it's not like that was a big breakout role for him but and we consider bill mosley like a horror icon now like we would tony todd but that's really only started since house of a thousand corpses yeah like when like zombie rob zombie it. basically revived his career like tarantino did john travolta you know like he brought him back he brought his career back from the dead essentially Oh, look at that clever use of the, words. Hey, at least put it back more <laughs> in the, uh, I don't know, in the in people's, in the public image, I guess, in roles that are more widely seen. Or the latent image, right? right? <laughs> no, no. no, that doesn't make any sense. You're right. So the film special effects, obviously Savini's busy being a director. He can't do the special effects as well, not directly. So the special effects in this were uh, done under the supervision of Everett Burrell and John Bullock for their company called Optic Nerve, which is still around today, I believe. Uh, They were really young at the time, 24 and 28 years old, respectively, working on this. And they had actually studied under Savini. Uh, They had worked with him on Friday the 13th. They worked on Alien with, uh, with Ridley Scott. You know, so they've got they've got a pretty good resume at this point. I was wondering if that's ever intimidating that like Tom Savini's the director and now you've got to do special effects. It's almost like, yeah. like if Da Vinci bought an apartment and he's like, I'm sticking on these two walls. I'm going to have somebody paint some murals. You guys go yeah, out. I don't it. have time. You guys do it. <laughs> <laughs> you'd be pretty, I don't know. You'd be like, I'm going to shit my pants. That's, so, uh, bur- that's, a, bur- that's a good sketch. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll write that up. 
<laughs> so Burl and Volek, under Savini's direction, they were kind of moving away from the excess that had kind of begun to define the zombie films. Much of what we discussed, like back in our Day of the Dead episode, how they had kind of ramped up the gore and the violence and everything. They kind of wanted to move away from that, instead taking a kind of less is more approach to it. They wanted it to, they wanted the zombies to feel realistic. They wanted to, what they said, they wanted it to look more like someone's next door neighbor, not mutant aliens. That's that's uh, the way they described it. So what they did is they actually, uh, they researched by attending an autopsy. Uh, this this sounds actually a lot like what Stuart Gordon did for Reanimator, because he went to like a morgue, I think, to to study what corpses look like. But they went to an autopsy. They studied pathology textbooks. And they even looked at footage of like Holocaust victims. Uh, not like dead, but like ones who were still alive, like in concentration camps because oh, they wow. were emaciated. And they're like, this is the closest that a living being has ever been to the living dead, essentially. That is not wrong. No, not at all. I, I think that's a really interesting approach. And I think you can see it now. Of course, there are embellishments like the white of the eyes, which I think is a really cool look, honestly, yeah, I like in this. That. And I don't know. I mean, you see that a lot in zombie movies now. Like, I want to say like something even as recent as Train to Busan, I think their eyes are whited out like cloudy. But I wonder if this is the first time that was done in a zombie movie, like the whited out eyes. I mean, this is 1990, which seems really recent, but it was 30 years ago. It wasn't that recent. Yeah, and I mean, there had been zombie stuff, but Romero was kind of... His stuff didn't really have that look, though. The, yeah, the, well, well, that's what I mean. Eyes. I was going to say, he was kind of the trendsetter for anything that happened in it. I, I don't recall it being in any of those movies. Other so. than Evil Dead 2, yeah. which technically those are not zombies, but that was before this. And, and you know, Evil Ash, like his eyes are whited out like that. But, yeah, that that's the one that sticks out to me. Yeah. They were contractually obligated to get an R rating on this, which is kind of a bummer. But so because of that, a lot of the effects ended up on the cutting room floor. So here's actually an, an excerpt that I took from Savini's book, Grand Illusion. Grand Illusion 1, I think, is what this one's from. He's got two of them. Time can become your enemy on a project. Actually, it's the lack of time that robbed us of some juicy stuff we had planned. And the ratings board that robbed us of some of the juicy stuff we did shoot. You didn't get to see the head squibs that we did on some of the zombies or the actual head explosion when Tom shotguns the burning zombie from the truck. I actually fired both barrels of a double barrel shotgun into the fake head of that dummy. We didn't get to see it, which is a real bummer of a moment in that in the movie. I think when you see him on the back of the bed of the truck and shoot it, and then you don't get to see the explosion. What a bummer, right? Yeah. Yeah. So was he talking about an actual dummy or was he calling William Butler a dummy? Like, yeah, he shot William <laughs> Butler in the head. That's why we don't see much out of William Butler. Uh, acting well, his right. head was reconstructed, and but the, he had brain damage, hence ginger gingerbread. Bread. Ginger, ginger dead. dead man too, passion of right. the crust. <laughs> That's really an allegory about the, uh, like the PTSD or something that came out of that a metaphor for the PTSD he suffered from that's probably what it is I'm sure there's a lot of just really deep analytical stuff we could talk about that joke's got so many layers you guys so many layers (laughs) ginger dead man (laughs) (laughs) so other things that did not make it into the film included Tom actually catching fire and running under the truck causing it to explode which kind of recalls the original film it's kind of a bummer that you didn't get to see that and then one very like extremely cool sounding scene where Ben's trying to save Barbara from an approaching zombie. Uh, I sent you guys the, I think the storyboards on this. 
So, and which the storyboards are also in, in grand illusion. I'll try to throw them up on like our Instagram or something. Cause it's really fun to see. So Ben's trying to save Barbara from this zombie who's coming. So he sticks the barrel of his gun into the zombie's mouth as it's like coming towards him, trying to bite him. And he pulls the trigger, but the chamber is empty. It's a revolver chamber is empty. There's only one round left in the pistol. They do show like a close up of the pistol. You can see there's one bullet in there and it slowly like rotates towards the hammer. Right. Yeah. And when it finally fires, when the bullet fires, we travel as the bullet through the zombie's head. So you've got this shot of like going through the zombie's head as blood splashes on Barbara, who's behind it, which sounds like an amazing shot and would be super cool if they had been allowed to film it. Yeah, that would have been really, that would have been really awesome. There's actually, there's an entire book that came out last year called like the unseen version or, or the night of the living dead 90. You never saw something like that Mm. where it's a, it's a bunch of the storyboards with, with annotations by Tom Savini, where you get to see kind of the, what his original intention for the film was. And he had some badass effects planned for this that he just, Either either through time because of time constraints, like you mentioned in that quote that Gary read, or just because the producers or the MPAA wouldn't let him, never made the film. Oh. Yeah, um, and it's not like there's a director's cut of this out there where where this footage exists. Like the footage wasn't shot. Yeah, and and a lot of the stuff that he had, you know, he, going back to something we were talking about, he, he I think in that documentary he talks about, uh, or he says to watch the documentary and you get to get a. Uh, good feel for some of that stuff. But uh, he said, you know, it just never even got added in. And it was disappointing for him because he thought that audiences would have expected with his name and George's name, like a whole gore fest. And, right. you know, like we said, it's, it's kind of sterile. Um, and then he describes that, you know, this is the point where I had that note actually down there. He says, uh, this is a quote from me. So he says, I wasn't even involved in the initial editing. Columbia bought the picture from 21st century while we were shooting it, which reduced our post-production time. Instead of 10 weeks for post-production, we had four weeks to rush the film out for a Halloween release. They took the film out to California and whenever the MPAA said cut something, they just did it on their own. I would have argued, I would have changed the color of the blood, done something to keep more footage in there but it just didn't happen that way. It's a bummer. Yeah. He said, uh, you know, like even the autopsy zombie, like he had to fight for that, you know, that zombie walking along. He said they almost didn't even let him shoot that one. Uh, they were running out of time and they just kept denying it and denying it. And he finally got the guy who was in sh- the zombie instructor on set, Tim Carey, or I think is his name. Uh, Jim just, Carey. Yeah. Jim Carey. But <laughs> said he had to, uh, make him just throw it on and go out there and do it so they could just at least get that. The film was released on October 19th, 1990 to pretty negative reactions from critics. So Roger Ebert, uh, who we like to reference here because I mean, I feel like he's just the most famous film critic of all time. He gave it one out of four stars said the remake is so close to the original that there's no reason to see both. Mm. Owen Gleiberman of entertainment weekly said In the history of bad ideas, George Romero's decision to produce a color remake of his disturbingly frenzied 1968 zombie fest, Night of the Living Dead, has to rank right up there with New Coke. That's the most 1990 fucking review I've ever heard. Wow. Comparing it to New Coke. See, and and that quote alone, the the part that it lets me in on is that uh, Owen obviously thought New Coke would be successful enough to last. 
So I don't know like if he thought this this review would play years later. <laughs> I don't think he cared about years later. <laughs> yeah, most most right. critics are writing for the time, you know. Well, yeah. guess what? We're pulling your shit up right now on this show from That's right. 1990. So <laughs> keep that in mind. He didn't know the internet was going to be a thing back then. You're right. <laughs> uh, modern reassessments have been a, a lot more kind to this film, I think, because it's kind of gained a pretty big cult following among horror fans. I think uh, a lot there's been a lot more appreciation for it in the subsequent decades since its release. So what do you guys think? Do you think this is like a a worthy remake? Do you do you like it? Do you think it's do you think it was unfairly criticized upon release? Do you think what what are y'all's thoughts on this? Well, you guys know how uh big of a Batman fan I am and as I get I like older Batman. Yeah, I know. It's weird, right? Um, don't ask to see his tattoo. <laughs> but um, no, seriously, don't. No, yeah, don't. Um, <laughs> but as I've gotten older, I've gained a fondness for all the different versions of Batman from you know the sixties, the eighties, and nineties on into the newer stuff, and even the serials from the forties. There's stuff I love about that one as well. So this is. I'm I'm good with this. This is this is totally fine. Again, you know, you think about uh Savini was such a was such a big fan of Romero and this was such a important film for him. Getting tossed the keys to the kingdom is just oh man, I'll put he put up clearly with a lot of bullshit from the producers to even just get this you know, in the can and I you got to think that even having his name up there after the title card, you know, directed by, you know, night of the living dead directed by Tom Savini. He, he has to get a chill from that. that's gotta be cool. Yeah. 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 So, um, is it perfect? No. Is there stuff that, you know, probably should have been in it to make it even cooler? Of course. But, um, honestly, I, I really dug this. This was a lot of fun. Uh, I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed the character interactions between uh, Barbara and Ben, and I felt like it was definitely more intense once you introduced uh, the rest of the characters in the house. And um, yeah, I was I was in it in it from the word go. So. In it to win it, Gary. Yeah. What do you think? Um, initial actually, thoughts. Yeah, I'm actually a fan of this one. I I, I think it's good enough, and, and like some of the stuff that. Um, they seem to be bothered by, I don't think stood out to me at first, like, like the lack of gore. Um, I thought the effects that are in it are very good. And uh, so, so I think I probably looked at that as more of a, uh, just like maybe we're paying homage to the original that there's just not like a lot of over the top gore. I know. Well, that's what Savini said. Like he, he wanted it to, he thought that he 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 is quoted as saying he thought it would be disrespectful to the original to go too over the top with the gore like he had in Day of the Dead. Right. So right. it was never his intention to make this a gore fest necessarily, but he did intend to make it gorier than it is. Yeah. Yeah. I but I think it works well enough. And I think the the performances are strong in it. Like I I, I like Tony Todd and Tillman and um Otis and uh anyway yeah i i i'm okay with this one i remember as a kid actually honestly watching this one i think more than the original at the time and i think that was probably just because it was black and white yeah the black and white bs i mean 
I think that this is, I think it's an incredibly flawed film. Certainly, like Todd said, it's not perfect. I think maybe compromised is a better term. It, it feels like you can tell that this is not what Savini had intended. It feels like it's neutered, kind of, you know, like it feels like this is just, there's something missing. You can't quite put your finger on it. Yes, the gore is part of it because you see, here's the thing. You see Romero, like, like just like Savini said in that interview, you were quoting Gary. Um, Savini says, hey, you see, my name and Romero's name on this, you're expecting a certain kind of movie because we did Day of the Dead. We did Dawn of the Dead. Like you expect some wild over the top shit and you don't get that here. Honestly, it's pretty straightforward. And even though that they, you know, Savini and the optic nerve guys never intended this to be as gory as Day of the Dead. They couldn't because they, again, they were contractually obligated. They signed on to do an R-rated film whereas Dawn and Day were both released unrated. They couldn't do that this time. But it still feels like what he did intend to put in it still didn't make it to the screen, you know? But with that said, I still think the movie's underrated, uh, or at least at the time of the... the way it was regarded at the time of release, that it was underrated. And I do think it deserves the kind of re-examining that it's received in, in more recent years. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, there, there are very few remakes that stand up to their originals and even fewer that prove to be better than the originals. That just doesn't happen. I mean, we I, yeah. I mentioned Carpenter's a thing and Cronenberg's The Fly earlier, and those are probably the only two, at least the only two I can think of, that are sort of universally considered to be better than the films that they're based on. Like, nobody's going to argue that assessment. And a lot of remakes are just totally dismissed upon release, especially by genre fans. Um, and often they're soon forgotten after release, which wasn't, you know, this movie wasn't necessarily forgotten. Uh, it's had a life, especially when it hit VHS and stuff. And it has, I don't know, it has the distinction of being a pretty decent film with some really good effects work. But one thing you can't deny is that Romero's film, the original film was so singular and so iconic that any attempt to remake it, whether Romero's involved or not, it's going to have a hard time living up to that original film. That original film created the zombie subgenre. Like anybody trying to redo that is, you got you got big shoes to fill. Yeah, uh, sterile is a good term, I think, for it. Um, you know, we, we've seen that pop up a couple of times, and 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 it does feel that way a little bit. I feel like. There's probably stuff he would have preferred to flesh out a little bit more in uh, what was going on. And uh, I don't know. The pacing feels fine. But, yeah, I, you said it best, I think, looking back on it. It does feel like there's something missing, but I, I couldn't sit here and tell you exactly. Kind of hard to put your finger on it, you yeah. know? I do think – okay, so there are some distinct differences between – the original film and Romero's rewritten script his kind of reimagining that are definitely worth talking about. Uh, the main, of course, main difference being the character of Barbara. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Much to the disdain of feminists and Gary's everywhere. The original Barbara was, <laughs> I mean, what did you call her Gary? What was, what was your, what did you call her in your review of night of the living dead? You just said, fuck Barbara. 
Yeah, something like that. <laughs> I, think that's what you said. I was about to say, did I come up with a clever name? Because I felt no, like I think you just, just said fuck Barbara. I think she I took sucks. the more caveman approach too. <laughs> well, I think Barbara. my wife had the question for both of you was, is she the worst in every horror movie? Is she no, the- by the original Barbara? Yeah, the original Barbara. I don't know that she's the worst, but she's she's bad. No. Um, there are there are worse. There are more annoying ones. I think at least she, she but she spends most of that film kind of hysterical like in this near catatonic state like completely helpless and of course that's something that Romero as we've discussed on other episodes he kind of tried to apologize for that or make up for it for like the rest of his career by writing strong women as his leads you know so here he does the same thing he reimagines Barbara as a strong woman and as a fighter the exact opposite of what the original Barbara was And, and you've still got that sort of what she saw happen to her brother is has kind of driven her crazy, but instead of going like catatonic, she goes the other direction and just dials it up and just becomes like, you know, fucking Ellen Ripley is who she becomes. She becomes Ripley. Right. Uh, aliens, well, I, th- you know? I think one of the, one of the things they say about your protagonist is it's the person that goes through the biggest change throughout the narrative and yeah. looking at the original, I feel like, not a lot happens with Barbara in terms of the change of her character. Sure. Uh, nothing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah pretty I mean, much she, nothing. she turns off. Right. And Ben clearly becomes the, the focus of the original. Whereas with this, with the 1990 remake, I feel like. I feel like Barbara's we, more the lead than Ben. Yeah. She clearly yeah. takes the bigger character arc. She has the biggest change. Which uh, is interesting. Cause as we discussed throughout. in the original one, it kind of does a switcheroo on you. You know, where she starts off seeming like she's going to be the protagonist because it starts off with her and her backstory and Johnny. And then it kind of, Ben shows up and he kind of takes over the movie. And this one, Ben shows up, but he still is sort of, he's the secondary lead, but it's still Barbara's story. Even though she's still not, she's still very quiet. She doesn't talk as much as Ben or as Cooper, but she's feel like it's her narrative more than it has been this time around. Well, and I think that's the, the end result of that is you get a story that's a little more complicated you get, uh, you know, fans are having to really pay attention to everyone and everything that's happening. And it's not until, you know, almost the very end where you see, yeah, this is absolutely Barbara's story. Yeah. I, I, I like the fact that she, she, actually does change along with you know like with ben coming in like there there's the segment and you know he puts the coat over and all of that stuff and uh but she actually does get better and eventually surpass him even in like her assertiveness and that sort of thing so much so that you know she's trying to calm him and uh what's his face down because like they're fucking fighting over everything like it's yeah yeah that's all they do the whole film is they just bicker the entire time she's the only one getting anything really done you know exactly so it's like busy so maybe if there is any sort of a statement which i've seen stuff with like savini like not really caring too much to like say that necessarily i mean clearly she's a stronger female character but it almost does seem to have this moment of like look at the testosterone fueled bullshit that you get out of these two guys yes like that they're fighting with each other and she's the one who's like got to keep a level head and you know she's actually she's got an analytical way even and you could i feel like you can kind of see it in this when she's looking at the bodies 
of like when she's killed the one she's rolling up in the carpet or whatever she just kind of stares at it for a little bit or she's like looks outside sometimes and just sees them uh it's like she's studying what she's seeing so that she even has that idea like we could get out of here we could run past them like we're well she's the only one that like while while ben and cooper are yelling at each other and trying to figure out do we stay upstairs do we go downstairs like you know she's the one that's like let's just fucking leave like look they're slow we can run past them. And in the end, that's how she survives is, right. by, is by leaving the house yeah. while, and they both die. <laughs> you know? Yeah. They're just yeah. both trying to fight. That's a good point. Yeah. They're both just trying just, to vet, find the they, best they place die. to hold up. Yeah. And, and they die by shooting each other by their own bickering is what takes them out. Yeah. And well, ultimately I mean, ending up at the opposite Cooper. place that the, either one wanted to go. Like, uh, Cooper yeah. wants to go down in the basement, ends up up in the attic, and like yeah. bends yeah. down in the basement, and, yeah. uh, I don't know. dying, bleeding out. Where he finds the key to the gas tank that they've been fighting over for half the movie. Right. <laughs> if they had just stopped yelling at each other and worked together, and you know that's kind of what that's kind of the story they're telling here is like, hey, if you just work together, then you could get out of here. If they had just worked together and searched for this key instead of yelling at each other the whole time. Uh, which is what not only gets them killed, but gets old Tom and Judy Rose or whatever her name is uh, killed, you know, out on the truck with a big truck explosion. Like in the original film, they could have just, they could have just left, <laughs> you know, yeah. it wasn't that hard, but, but Barbara is like, yeah, she's the one who is able to say she's the one that, yeah, she's the, I guess the transformation, like you said, is the best way to put it. Cause she starts off, even, you know, with the big glasses, she's got the skirt on, but she even gets rid of the skirt, puts on some like khaki pants and combat boots that were in that farmhouse, I guess, that just fit her. I don't know. But you see her with like a bandolier over her shoulder and a rifle. Like she looks like a badass, right? She's even got that short haircut like Ellen Ripley, you know, she's right. yeah. she's become like the hero. She's become a, a vigilante of some sort at that point. And her transformation is sort of the catalyst for that final act of the film, which is the final act is where it really departs from the original movie because everything in the first like two thirds of the movie, even though there are small differences here and there, the story beats are pretty much identical. Yeah. Up until the point where she decides to change. And then the whole third act is pretty different from the original film. Cause you know, like both Harry and, and Ben die, but in very different fashions than in the original film uh because of course uh, ben gets shot by ben and cooper shoot each other ben bleeds out and th- turns into a zombie himself which barbara has to execute and then barbara who at this point has turned into just like she's just turned cold-blooded just fucking kills yeah. cooper yeah. in cold blood you know yeah, i was gonna say it's funny like she goes from like at the beginning being like almost afraid to fight to not wanting to be like a killer at all to like, now I'll shoot the little girl version. I'll be the one that's like, y'all got to kill that little girl. And, yeah. uh, and then just like, fuck it. You know what? I don't even care if there's a zombie anymore. <laughs> like, yeah. I'll just kill somebody. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's crazy. And, but well, you know, and she also, and just one more little thing. She learns, you see, you watch her face as she's talking to some of the onlookers and you see she's already, learn how to sort of blend in with their crowd so as not to raise their suspicions and well you've also got that, the that to me where, was really fascinating 
You've also got that moment where those rednecks were like, what, you know, hey, little lady, what are you doing out here by yourself? And she right. just kind of rolls her eyes at him like, motherfuckers, y'all don't know what I've been through right. and what I've survived. <laughs> and it's a great moment, honestly. It's it's yeah. like her, I wish the rest of the film were as strong as her character arc is. Right. Um, yeah. I wish that it had as much bite to it as, as, as her specific arc in that last act of the movie does. Because yeah. I feel like a lot of it doesn't quite live up to that. Because uh, it's she's definitely the character that you have empathy with. Like in the original one, you have empathy with uh, with Ben, I think. But this one, it's it's really more her because Ben in this version is shit. He's almost as bad as Cooper. Like he's just they're just yelling at each other right from the get go for no reason. And Tony Todd's very good in it, and he does you get you sympathize with him a little bit. You don't think he's a bad person, but. I guess Cooper just really gets under his skin. Now, Cooper, on the other hand, is just an asshole for no reason right. immediately. Yeah, Cooper's that, that's one of the flaws, I think. Yeah, yeah that, he's, he's cartoonishly dickish. Like, yeah, that, that's one of the flaws, I one of the major flaws of the film, I think, is I think Tom Towles is a great actor, but I think that he just has that performance. He's just dialed it up to like 11 the entire time. And it's like, bro, like you're going to like watch your blood pressure, man. Like, well, if I, <laughs> if just, I can just. Yeah, if I can just say, you know, I thought the and you'll this is a rare moment where you'll hear me talk about the costuming, but the addition of him wearing a tuxedo, mm-hmm. I felt added to that. Like yeah. he he thinks he's better than everybody else. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. Go ahead and throw him in a tuxedo and just just an asshole to the nth degree. Yeah. And uh yeah, that that tuxedo really just yeah, the, and cher- I the cherry on the cake, man. And I don't know if they were playing up on the race thing, but like um, there's some there's some level of it that he's just like, I refuse that this guy is going to give me orders like I'm just not going to be subservient to to Ben. And Ben just has this like he's sympathetic in that you can tell he's a good dude, but it almost shows like the the tragic flaw of that as well, I think, is what they're going for that that like Ben is also like. I'm the alpha. I'm the hero. I'm the char in charge. And uh, the second he gets somebody that pushes back on that, it's just like, now this is my arch nemesis. Like I have to like butt heads with him constantly and everything yeah. he does. And I mean, and, and they, and they do play with that because I mean, when Cooper is taking the TV and Ben gets like all riled up about that. And it's like, you're trying to take it into the basement. And he's like, I can't even get reception in the basement. Like I wasn't taking it to the basement. And yeah. uh and so I don't know. And so by the end of it, yeah, they're both just fucking annoying. Yeah, they're 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 trying to like one up each other like this. It's a it's a dick measuring contest, right? And that's what spells their doom. You don't know, do and that I think Tony Todd. I'm guessing. Do not. <laughs> <laughs> Did but you guys I, find that on Pornhub? Yep. Was that was that one of the that's a trending things? search. Okay. There you go. <laughs> Candyman. Say it say it five times. Candyman's candy cane. <laughs> say, say go to Pornhub and go to Pornhub and type in Candyman five times. <laughs> Tony Tony Todd's and dick will appear. And you'll see Tony Todd's <laughs> dick. <laughs> and it will split you from groin to gullet. Let me tell you. <laughs> This is not God, a I, hope I expected this, this show to go down. Uh. <laughs> but yeah, overall, I mean, closing thoughts for me. I think this is a decent film. 
I think it's a decent zombie movie. Yeah. Obviously, it does not hold up to the original in any way, shape, or form, but it's fine. You know, I, I wish that Savini had been able to give us the version that he that he wanted. And I know that Savini was he did he really hated the way the movie turned out. In recent years, you know, if you watch Smoke and Mirrors, that the Tom Savini documentary, he's talks about how he's seen it more recently and that he has kind of come to terms with the movie that it is. And he's like, it's a good movie. You know, it's not the movie I wanted. It's not a great movie. It's it's not as good as I wanted it to be, but it's a good movie. And I kind of agree with that. Like it's it's a decent movie. Yeah, it just feels, you know, and he was going through a lot. I, I did find this one quote from him that, you know, somebody asked him like what big regrets from there. And um and he said, this is actually his quote, he said, time. We just didn't have enough time. If you look at my book, Grand Illusions, I put the storyboards in there of all the stuff that we didn't get to do because of not having enough time. Night of the Living Dead was the most horrible experience of my life. I couldn't wait to go home in the morning. I just didn't want to be there because they kept slapping my hands. You're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do that. And then my wife divorced me three weeks into shooting. So I was afraid of losing my daughter. So there was just a lot of turmoil. We're lucky we we got what we did on the screen. Holy shit. Yeah, he is having a rough time, man. At the time, reviews were not kind, as we know, but you know, some some modern, you know, modern reassessments have been more kind to it, but not everyone loves this movie, right, Gary? That's absolutely true. So that means it's time for somebody needs a nap. Uh, I've got two here. One super quick. This first one comes from uh, his name on Amazon is Microsoft is not a monopoly. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and he says, Oh my God. Yeah. He literally does. With a Z? Yeah. With a Z. So my God, this is a totally crappy and boring. And the ending is heinous. One star. I mean, at least try to have a fly and not characters that act like loonies. All right. That's a one-star <laughs> review from one right. star. Microsoft is not a uh, monopoly. This is a little more thought out. Uh, this is from Robert Chatham. Love you, Robert. You're, you write well. Should have taken a nap before writing this review, I feel like. <laughs> he said, why did Romero do this? I cannot possibly understand why he would let his masterpiece be disgraced. I also don't understand how anyone could like this garbage. The worst part is that all of the characters have been turned into caricatures. There's no con- there's no confusion over who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Remember in the original, Ben got locked out of the house with zombies crowding around him because Harry Cooper was too frightened to let him in. No, now he's locked out because Harry's trying to steal the gun from the plucky Barbara so he could take pot shots at our heroes. The acting and script have been reduced to a level of a high school play. When the TV anchorman talks about the dead returning to life, he rolls his eyes and makes a goofy face as if to say, how could anyone take this seriously? Barbara weeps with a goofy half grin on her face, and it seems like all Judy does is scream like a four-year-old. Everyone seems very (laughs) self-aware, as if they just had acting lessons from the entire cast of the Scream films. The new ending and additional scenes are just garbage. We get a nice, feel-good, happy ending. Romero's original version of Night of the Living Dead as a social commentary of the 60s is reduced to this message. People get stupid when there's a crisis. Rock and roll, Savini. You surely hit the nail on the head with your remake of a classic. It's dumbed down and diluted for the masses. Oh. Well. So, yeah. 
Definitely needed a Somebody nap needs before a nap. that. Jeez, <laughs> I feel like I need a nap after that. Wow. Is that it? That's it. That's all. Well, then that spells the end of our first series on Cinema Shot, guys. Yeah. So, like I said before, a lot of these series are not going to be this long. Most of them are going to be a little more condensed. Uh, some will be longer than others. Uh, even sometimes when we do like a single filmmaker, because which we're going to do a lot, like where we focus on a filmmaker's work, uh, sometimes we're going to split those up by like eras of their career and, you know, certain films, things like that. Not necessarily an entire filmography, which this wasn't an entire filmography, but it was a pretty damn big chunk of it. Uh, some, some series that we do are going to be focused on franchises. Some are just going to be a, a theme, you know, but so we're going to be all over the place and we're starting a new series next week. So for the last 10 episodes, we've made Todd sit here and watch a bunch of horror movies that he didn't like. Uh, and I well, and yeah, this is the you there, like there this one. This is number four, I think. So we're batting 40 yeah. percent, pretty low. Yeah, uh, so and I, I'm gonna be honest, Todd, it's not gonna get a lot better than this. <laughs> at, we least go for. at least you're honest. It's not, I mean, <laughs> movies are gonna be great. Let me tell you, we've got some really fun movies planned, some really nice. fun series planned, but they're not gonna get less weird. And less esoteric than these movies necessarily, mm. uh, but we're going to spend the next few weeks doing some some that are a little more mainstream. Probably till the end of the year, really. Uh, everything cool. we're doing between now and the end of the year is going to be a little more mainstream. But then, twenty twenty one is going to get a little weird when we start off. But next week, because we've made Todd sit through ten episodes of movies <laughs> that he doesn't give a shit about, <laughs> um, and because he's going to have to sit through a lot more movies that he doesn't give a shit about. And he's we're throwing him a bone about it. We're throwing him a bone next week. We're starting Tony a three-part series. Bone, I would say. Starting a three-part series on Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy. Oh, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So, AKA the Dark Knight trilogy. Oh. Dark Knight trilogy. Oh. Starting next week for the next three weeks. Then we're going to get into some Christmassy stuff after that, so which will be fun. That'll be fun, too. So you guys know where to find Batman Begins starts things off. That's next week from 2005, right? Shit, yes. 15 years ago? God, yes. It's crazy. <laughs> uh, it's streaming watch. everywhere. Just You guys know where to find oh, Batman Begins. I don't know, so I, I don't know what, what to tell you. Or go to cinemashock.net. You can find a link to where you can stream it, watch it. You've seen it probably, but watch it again. Watch it with us. It'll be fun, you know? Yeah, and you get to October's watch over. You don't have to just watch, watch spook, spooky movies anymore. You can watch some non-spooky movies. Now I you got a like, reason to watch these back to back. Like, yeah. see, you know, just like I just I just watched all three of them like a month ago. So, oh, that's right. Yeah, you went through like all of his stuff, didn't you? I went through every Christopher Nolan movie over the summer. Nice. Well, it's nice. been a while for me on these, so I'm excited to get back into it. I was actually uh, talking to the wife not too long ago about wanting to do this because I honestly the third one. Uh, Dark Knight Rises, I never saw outside of theaters. Um, oh, wow. Todd, where are you on the internet? I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and D&D Beyond. D&D Beyond. Gary. <laughs> at This is Gary Horn on all the things. And I am at Justin underscore Bishop, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, where I've been updating all of my movies that I've watched this Halloween. I'm I've watched one every day, at least. 
I'm dangerously behind on updating everything. I need to I need to do that this so week. Scary. I keep trying to tell people to follow you guys and then you don't update them. You got oh, I know. I was pretty good up until October for some reason and all these uh movies uh, the horror movie marathon I've been going on I haven't been good about updating. I'll try to I'll try to work on that. You work on that, Gary. You can find the website at cinema underscore shock on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find us on Facebook or at cinemashock.net. Until next week, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. Be excellent to each other. Johnny Tiene Las Llaves. Is that Spanish? Yeah. <laughs> wow, look at that. Turns out, no, he fucking didn't, though. Not in the remake. No. <laughs> he didn't have, he didn't the, have keys. the keys. And they he were in the shot basement. a fucking gas pump. Why would you do that with a gun? Why would you do, why would you shoot something filled yeah. with gasoline? He's, I don't know. Because as soon as he aimed the gun at it, I was just like, oh well, okay, well that's how you that's how it ends. Yeah, what a dummy! <laughs> what a dummy! Uh, are, you gonna, are you retiring? Johnny has the keys since the the George Romero series is done. Like I'll now, next it. week you could start. He's just gonna like, go. I'm Batman. <laughs> Rattling cages. I'm Batman. I'm Batman. <laughs> I'm Batman. Are we just doing neighbors? Is that what we're yeah, doing right that's now? What we're doing. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, maybe you could go to like Why So Serious or something like that. I will Please, seriously, Jesus, for the love seriously of consider all, it. For the love of everything that is good in this world, do not start using Why So Serious. <laughs> Todd, I swear to God, please just show up in Joker face, mate. <laughs> we'll start, we start this next week. I just might. I just might. <laughs> we'll see. I've been, I've been, I've been toying with the idea of taking the beard down anyway. So, all right. Well, there you go. Yeah. Just as the weather gets cold, it seems like a great idea. Post and yeah. the social. We'll we'll send them out over the uh, Cinema Shock. Uh, <laughs> Todd becoming Todd, just become an incel for this next series, please. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we get we get we gotta go.